0: Hey there, welcome back to The Kicker, CGR's weekly podcast about the media. I'm David Uberti, your congested host and a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. It's Wednesday, June 7th, and this is the reality winner edition of the show. This week, we'll run through the big media stories we're watching from CGR's penthouse newsroom in Columbia University's Pulitzer Hall. Then, we'll discuss the Intercept scoop on Russian hacking into the U.S. election software supplier, whether they left their source out to dry, and the Trump administration's first leak investigation. Finally, we'll chat with Brendan Fitzgerald, editor of CGR's local news-focused United States Project, about how local news outlets across the country are covering the scandals swamping Washington. Joining me this week, a CGR Delacorte fellow, the Sancho Panza to my Don Quixote, Pete Vernon. Pete, how's it going?
1: Good. I'm enjoying the uh, witty banter that you're getting into these intros these days.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. I'm just uh, just about chasing windmills. Extra time uh, this week. Yeah, exactly. Slow news week. Um, <laughs> let's get into it. Pete, you author CGR's morning newsletter. You're addicted to content unlike anyone else I know. What are So some, much content. <laughs> what are some of the big media stories you're kicking around this week? So we're going to get to the biggest story, I think, a little bit later, which obviously
1: is James Comey's testimony, the swirling cloud of suspicion and smoke around Washington and Trump and all of that. Sure. Pick your metaphor that connects the swamp to the smoke. But I wanted to start actually on the business side. This is something that we are constantly watching the slow and inexorable decline of our financial model that has supported journalism for a century. And What we saw on Monday at Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference was kind of another brick in the wall between publishers and profits. Uh, You wrote a piece about this for CJR, and you referenced the doomsday clock. What were you talking about? And uh, yeah, explain it to me.
0: So Apple announced that it was going to add an ad blocker to its forthcoming version of its Safari browser, the desktop edition that is. On its own, that's not a big deal. Safari is not that popular of a browser. But the announcement comes on the heels of Google similarly announcing that it's going to install an ad blocker into its hugely popular Google Chrome browser, which many people use on the internet. And that has the potential for huge ramifications for advertisement-supported media, which is is the vast majority of, of legacy publications and many digital outlets as well. That, coupled with the fact that Facebook is increasingly letting out a stream of directives of how publishers can best formulate their content and their editorial strategy for their elusive algorithm, it just signals to me that these tech giants are really showing their willingness now. They have been for a while, but increasingly so, they're showing their willingness to shape an advertising market they overwhelmingly control already. And it's essentially just bad news bears for publishers.
1: Right. Better for... Consumers, I assume, right? Like, I don't have to watch some stupid 30-second pre-roll video before right. I read I a mean,
0: 500-word article. This is the sad irony of all of this. And publishers have essentially been asking for these browser-side or tech-side solutions for a long time. If you go to any newspaper website, magazine website, you will more likely than not be inundated with autoplay ads, those things that annoy you for fifteen seconds before you could actually get to your video story. Uh, you know, you have pop up quizzes, you have these, you know, flashing lights in the background, you know, telling you to go to new new travel websites and whatnot. Everybody on the internet hates these things, yet publishers have kept feeding their audiences these very advertisements for years, and it's just bad user experience. So you have tech giants who are essentially u- looking out for their, their users, and it will come at the expense of publishers' bottom lines.
1: So we're, we're talking about kind of smaller pub- online publishers that rely on digital advertising, some legacy newspapers, maybe in regional or some uh, network
0: like USA Today, right, Gannett. Who's not screwed? So I'll start with a context. Facebook and Google control about 60% of the digital advertising market in the United States, and some analysts estimate that they get upward of 75% of all new digital ad spending. So in order to compete in that environment, it's a very difficult proposition for any publisher. So the places that have built out more dynamic advertisement uh, production operations are, are typically the high end publishers or the very digitally savvy outlets. The New York Times, for example, has essentially built out an in house studio to create really high end native advertisements, which is sort of content that looks like content appears in the New York Times but it's actually an advertisement for a company. Places like BuzzFeed for example, they have also developed a very sophisticated ad shop that creates content that travels across the internet that they produce for brands. Publishers like that who have the digital know-how, they will be less affected by some of these ad blockers. They have the more high quality advertisements whereas you have a lot of newspaper publishers, newspaper companies Old Guard magazine companies such as Time Inc., they haven't built out sort of the in-house digital ad agencies in the same way. So I think in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, they they are the ones that are relying on these very low-quality advertisements that really bug a lot of people on the Internet.
1: So it sounds like just another story of rich get richer and everybody else is going to be left
0: behind. Yeah, essentially. And, and, you know, one of the side effects of this will be that the media will concentrate more on the coast. Because in many cases, you have a lot of these digitally savvy outlets located in places such as New York or L.A. or D.C., whereas a lot of the newspapers that have for decades been sort of the backbone of American media, they will be left to dry in the heartland.
1: Right, definitely something we're going to continue watching. Obviously, the business of news is a big part of what we do. And speaking of the business of news, another somewhat surprising story we're following regarding a publisher losing advertising and losing revenue is Breitbart, Hmm. which was supposed to be the kind of White House access organ of this new Trump era. Breitbart, of course, is where Steve Bannon was a top level executive before heading to the White House to become senior advisor to President Trump. It was a reliable backer of Trump during the campaign. Uh, when he was elected, surprisingly, people kind of looked to Breitbart and said, "This is the future of media. This is a extremely partisan, occasionally racist alt right associated mm-hmm. publication." And
0: sort of the voice of Trumpism, right?
1: And there was these, this thought that, "Wow, in this new political era, where..." old labels are kind of falling away and we already know that legacy publications are in trouble, maybe this is a place that's going to become a major player in uh, a new Trump administration era. And that's not what we're seeing. Um, Since the election, Breitbart's traffic has plummeted The number of advertisers on the site has dropped precipitously. Part of that's due to a campaign by liberal activist groups to encourage companies not to advertise on the site because of some of the content that Breitbart runs. They've also gotten rid of some of their more, uh, in a phrase that we try not to use so much anymore, right-wing provocateurs. (laughs) And it's just a really interesting development. I want to get a couple of the hard numbers here. In November... Breitbart had almost 23 million unique individual visitors. Um, That was down to under 11 million last month. That's a 53% drop-off. And while other news sites have seen drop-offs of about a quarter in terms of their visitors, places like The Washington Post and New York Times that same period, we've seen people not going to websites quite as much because the election is over, Breitbart's fallen off twice as much as other places.
0: And the interesting thing, in addition to all of this, and and this is all according to a Digiday report sort of on the post-election Trump slump, is that it's not relegated to Breitbart. Many right-wing or right-leaning sites, such as the Daily Caller, for example, have also experienced traffic drops in wake of the election. So it's it's something that is pervasive across the right-wing media, which suggests uh, something that we've seen on on cable ratings, at least. I was going to say, it's not just the web, it's TV, too. Right, that a a lot of these pro-Trump media organs have are slowly but surely finding out that it's more difficult to sell, you know, it's tougher uh, to be
1: affirmative, right? Like right. when you're not just constantly attacking the president who's in power, it's a little bit tougher to sell outrage to your audience. And I would say that's what places like Breitbart and Fox News right. succeeded on during the Obama years was selling outrage.
0: Right. And what's more, it's more difficult to package outrage as if it's some type type of journalism, which Fox News in particular has been very adept at over the last decade or right. A half. Right.
1: Picking up some small story and turning it into a larger conspiracy or a larger issue. Uh, I think of the birther issue or the new Black Panther Party, those sort of things that became hobby horses for Fox sure. News or
0: Santa Claus being white <laughs> you can you can pick your meme <laughs> Wow
1: nice transition into our next topic <laughs> which is television the broadcast television where Megyn Kelly uh, she of Santa Claus's white kids right um, is at NBC but we're actually watching a story at one of the other broadcast networks CBS where Scott Pelley the anchor of CBS Evening News since 2011 will be out of a job uh, or at least out of the anchor chair next Friday June 16th Pelly has been forced out of the evening news program where he's long been uh, in third place among the network broadcast but That was true before he got there, and it's just interesting. We'll talk about him a little bit, but it's interesting that this really doesn't feel like a big story,
0: right? I I recall this news breaking last week, and it seemed to just die with a whimper. I mean, I'm I'm millennial scum, and I don't watch the evening newscast typically. uh, And most of the people I know are similarly millennial scum who don't watch the evening newscast. Uh, But it seems almost as if this is just seemingly irrelevant to the broader media ecosystem, which belies their ratings. A lot of people still watch these things, but they don't seem to be in the daily news conversation to the extent that even old guard publishers such as the New York Times are.
1: Right. I mean, it, it is interesting. There's Scott Pelley in third place among broadcast evening news gets twice as many viewers on any given night as the top rated cable news show. Right. Um, so about 7 million people. Right. He's doubling up on what O'Reilly used to get or what Maddow is getting now, and yet it still doesn't feel quite as relevant. I'm sure if your parents or my parents, if they met up somewhere and talked to each other, it would concern them a little bit because they are, uh, you know, part of that aging, irrelevant demographic. Hi, Mom. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, Mama don't, Vernon will not be happy with that. No, Mom. she's not right. going to be happy. <laughs> she's been carefully tracking our mentions of right. parents watching evening news. Right. Um, but no, in, in the media ecosystem in which we live, uh, that's, you know, largely digital, um, social media based. It's just not a... Uh, relevant story, um, even though it's obviously a, a huge shift. And with Pelly leaving, he will be replaced temporarily at least by Anthony Mason. CBS will have a search for a more permanent anchor. And it'll be interesting to see. You know, I don't think that we're suddenly going to see a reversal of any of the major networks' uh, downward trending numbers in uh, audience.
0: Right. Yeah. And it also remains to be seen whether they make the necessary investments in digital in order to really bolster their news operations and bring them into the 21st century. CNN has done some really interesting stuff on the digital side. They spent a boatload of money in taking a lot of their TV revenue and throwing it into making a digital business. It's unclear exactly what the network news stations are doing insofar as building out a natively digital team to help them stay relevant.
1: Right. And it'll be something that they should be doing. I think we would both agree. It'll be interesting to see if they can take their broad audiences from television and turn themselves into places that break news on the web and are really involved in the media ecosystem in the way that places like CNN and BuzzFeed currently
0: are. Moving on to our next segment. On Monday, the online investigative outfit The Intercept published a detailed report saying that the Russian military intelligence executed a cyber attack on at least one U.S. election software supplier, citing a top-secret NSA report. Within about an hour or so, the FBI announced it had arrested a 25-year-old government contractor by the name of Reality Winner which sounds like something out of an online whistleblower name generator. (laughs) I want to get to the nuts and bolts of the leak investigation and why it was wrapped up so quickly and what it means for the Trump administration. But first, Pete, how about the intercept of all outlets breaking this Russia news? I mean, on one level, it's not surprising,
1: right? The intercept was created in 2014 with Glenn Greenwald kind of as its uh, star editor and founder, he of the Edward Snowden leaks. And it was created essentially to be a place where people could leak secret documents with writers, reporters, editors there who understood the process of getting those documents and protecting sources
0: and, and everything. And particularly leaks from the intelligence and national security right. communities.
1: Right. And so on that level, it's not surprising that someone would turn to The Intercept, right? They landed with a splash in, with Snowden and have continued to publish a series of important national security stories. It's surprising in the Russia sense, as you mentioned, because Glenn Greenwald has been something of an apologist for Russia as these stories have broken? Maybe that's the wrong word.
0: but At least tapping the brakes, sure. at, at least over the last six or eight months or so. When there's been so much smoke surrounding the Trump campaign's collusion with the Russians or alleged collusion with the Russians, Glenn Greenwald and a lot of other folks at The Intercept have been sort of the first line of critics saying, hey, let's wait until we can get some official confirmation on this, some more concrete facts to back up what, to this point at least, uh, has been a lot of smoke but no sort of clear fire in terms of proving any collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Right, and even in this
1: story, which was pretty shocking, it detailed uh, a phishing operation by the Russian military intelligence to infiltrate American actual voting systems. A a third-party contractor who is providing not the voting machines, but the software that ran those voting machines before the election and was actually happening in late October, just in the days leading up to the election. That's a pretty shocking report. Even within the Intercept story, though, they caution, this is only one piece of intelligence. The NSA has many different competing analyses, and no major conclusion should be drawn from this document because a single analysis is not definitive. So they're they're providing some caution as as their reporters and editors have been throughout this whole Russia fest, um, right. but what happened kind of in the hour after this story broke really overtook the actual facts of this report.
0: It was a pretty incredible chain of events following the publication. Obviously, media Twitter was a buzz once this report was dropped, but soon after the FBI actually announced that it it had arrested a young woman by the name of Reality Winner who was the suspected leaker of these documents. And the FBI also released a number of its own documents sort of laying out its application for search and arrest warrants. And it suggests that the way in which they found this contractor was at the intercept essentially received these documents in the mail, they contacted a separate contractor in order to verify them, and then that second contractor took a picture of these documents, shared them with the National Security Agency, and then the National Security Agency was able to determine that those documents were actually printed within the agency. And from there, they inferred that just a few people had printed these documents, and they narrowed the pool to eventually come down to this young woman reality winner, who, by the way, emailed the Intercept on her work computer. Still, despite that all, it suggests that The Intercept may have committed some very serious failures in terms of protecting their sources.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like both sides made some errors here, right? Reality Winner, a 25-year-old Air Force veteran who had just started working for this contractor. She wasn't working directly for the NSA, but for a contractor. And she made a few mistakes one she had previously emailed the intercept in an unrelated manner it turns out it sounds like she had emailed about a podcast subscription um before she had even seen this document so that was one kind of error on her part she then printed from within the uh like office where she worked and i think uh, like reading some people who are way more experienced in this than we are they were saying what she should have done was either copied it down by hand, she should have taken screenshots with her computer or on her phone instead of printing something out, which can be easily tracked. All of those things are a problem. She sent it with a postmark from the town that she lives in, in Augusta, Georgia. Um, those are all errors on her part. And it's important for journalists to remember that not every leaker is going to be as careful and as secure as Edward Snowden was. Right. Um, those are errors on her side the issues from the intercept side the fbi makes the claim that they identified all of this because of a crease in the paper that you mentioned that may be true it might not the intercept's statement about all of this was very clear to say take all of this with the understanding that the government is making their case and they're going to present a story that is favorable to them and
0: the intelligence community has a well-known beef with the intercept right
1: going back to Snowden, sure Um, but the intercept got this report anonymously. They didn't know who it came from. They did not know it was allegedly reality winner. But in reading some of the coverage of this, it does seem like they made some mistakes, that they presented an actual copy of the document to a contractor when they went to confirm the authenticity. That's a mistake right. instead of retyping it on
0: their own or just
1: describing right. its contents.
0: Right. And, and the reason why that's important is that many new printers nowadays, and this is according to, you know, uh, many smart national security folks who have analyzed sort of the chain of events, many new printers actually imprint barely visible dots within pages that they print. So it allows places such as the NSA, in particular the NSA, to essentially deduce where and when these Uh, certain documents were printed. It's very similar to a situation a couple of years back when I think it was Vice News essentially revealed where John McAvee, the antivirus guy, turned semi-fugitive. They published a photo of him that was taken on an iPhone, and it actually included metadata that revealed his location. So it all, it all is to say that when you are trying to confirm information with official sources, you may not want to show them or provide the actual document that you're working off of, take some steps to you know, provide some distance between the primary document and the information that you're trying to actually confirm.
1: Right. I think we all kind of, in the general public, National security experts learned some things about information security, uh, how to work with sources. OpsEC.
0: yeah, your favorite word OPSEC. I heard We, that all word became, a lot we on instantly
1: Twitter. all became experts on opsEC. but there's a there's a bigger story here, right, which is that this is the first leak prosecution under the Trump administration, right? Trump has come out again and again saying the real story here is leakers. Well, now allegedly they have arrested one. What does this mean uh, on a bigger picture story for the state of the relationship between Trump? the press and these many, many government agents or contractors who have provided information to the press.
0: Right. I mean, on the one hand, you can fit this within the broader narrative of Trump versus the press. He said some pretty aggressive things toward freedom of the press and how he was going to pursue leak investigations. On the other hand, this is a pretty clear cut case. I mean, this woman stole classified information and provided to a news outlet. It's I think it's fair to say that the Obama administration would have similarly prosecuted this woman as well.
1: Yeah, and that's a point that a lot of people made in the media, whether that's on Twitter or in actual pieces of reporting. Um, The Obama administration's record on press freedoms and prosecuting leakers was not a particularly strong one. We obviously know about Chelsea Manning. We know about Edward Snowden. The Obama administration was aggressive in its pursuit of government leakers. And the statute under which Reality Winner will be charged, the same one that Manning and Snowden were and continue are under indictment for in Snowden's case, um, which is the Espionage Act of 1917, this piece of legislation that was initially passed to deal with spies and saboteurs working for foreign governments that has since been applied to government leakers. And this is something that's an issue and a and piece of legislation that, as journalists, a lot of us feel like should be uh, repealed, rewritten, in some way adjusted so that it's not used in a manner in which it was not really intended.
0: Right. And, you know, just just to end here, I mean, I feel like in these discussions, you always have journalists saying the to be sure paragraph with regard to the Obama administration, to be sure Obama prosecuted leakers to an extent that none of his predecessors combined had prosecuted them. And the reason why that's an important statement is because it essentially gave Trump political cover to pursue these investigations with the same level of aggression, if not more aggression. And so, you know, on the one hand, we can be clamoring for press freedom and how we should be protecting our sources and uh, how we should allow whistleblowers to, you know, basically point out wrongdoing. But on the other hand, Trump has an amazing amount of political cover and he is really sort of up the rhetoric with regard to leakers and information coming out of his White House. So I mean, I'm, I'm sure the heat has been turned up for a lot of these folks who have been thinking about giving information to journalists. So it's incumbent upon reporters more now than ever to take the appropriate steps necessary to keep them safe. All of the controversies swirling around President Trump seem to have come to a head in the past day or so. But we wanted to turn outside the beltway and look at how local media have covered the nascent administration and its policies. Joining us now to break it down is Brendan Fitzgerald, editor for CGR's United States Project, which focuses on local news. Brendan, how's it going? Hey Dave, it's going really well, how are you? I'm doing well. I imagine that you're calling from a diner, somewhere that's more in touch with quote unquote real America. <laughs>
2: I should be more in touch with Real America in the coming weeks right now. I'm uh, across our northern border in Ontario visiting my in-laws, but it'll be nice to get back to the state.
0: So we're recording this Wednesday, just hours after the Senate Intelligence Committee released former FBI Director James Comey's prepared statement. It indicates that his testimony on Thursday will at the very least confirm a hell of a lot of the anonymously sourced scoops from national media about Trump, Russia, and Comey in recent months. But I'm curious, Brendan, you command and control CJR's web of correspondents throughout the country who report on local media. How are these places covering this avalanche of revelations that have really captivated national media in the last couple of months?
2: Every newsroom we touch base with. And there were about two dozen uh, in total we spoke with this past week are all earnestly trying to parse their readers interests in the Russian investigation and uh, in, in Comey's testimony. The twist seems to be that they're all coming back with totally different ideas as far as their readers interests. Uh, hmm. Far and away you see a lot more commentary on the editorial pages than you do any attempts at fervent news coverage. You see a bit more uh, editorial coverage as you move into your your bigger local papers, mm. uh, places that really dominate the media markets in their states. So the Cleveland Plain Dealer comes to mind. So does the Denver Post. Uh, places where you've seen a good number of editorials, as well as in both cases a greater amount
0: for many national political stories, say, with regard to Congress, you, you can pretty easily localize those. Whereas with this one, it seems a little bit more difficult for local news organizations to compete on, particularly if they don't have people in Washington. In lieu of this, how are local news organizations approaching the Trump presidency, if not focusing on something that, that has really driven the narrative on cable TV, on broadcast networks and whatnot?
2: Some of the smaller newsrooms where you're still seeing somewhat steady edit- board outcry. They're, they're still trying to localize, but they're focused more on 2018. I mean, they're looking ahead to midterm elections. So when you do see efforts to localize, it's really um, mostly newsrooms uh, and editorial boards reaching out and asking for these officials to kind of respond to the administration's rhetoric. Right. A lot of the more impassioned editorials that our team turned up, are coming from newspapers that see it as kind of a a strong opportunity for a civics refresher, um, an opportunity to remind people um, some of the procedural functions of government at this point in time, and if not to... Parse them from the perspectives of a Beltway insider, than instead to play a, a high school civics teacher role and raise some valuable questions about the functionality of those
0: institutions. Right. I had an interesting conversation the other day with a guy named Chris Arnad, who's one of these folks who goes out and talks to a lot of Trump voters, people in the white working class. He writes occasional stories for the Guardian. He's also a photographer and has a great Twitter presence. But His basic critique of a lot of political media now is that it's sort of an inside baseball game and that the narrative that emanates from Washington, it's so complex that it's the equivalent of having someone who doesn't know football at all going to a Super Bowl watch party. Uh, And sort of being thrown into this situation where, like, I mean, to your point, that civics lessons are really necessary for people who aren't politics junkies. The upshot is that, you know, folks who aren't in the Beltway or in New York or in L.A. or whatnot, they care more about pocketbook issues, for example, uh, how the budget will affect their local communities.
2: One of the questions we put to these editors was, could you qualify or quantify the response your newsroom got to uh, any coverage of Comey and Russia so far? Or any lack of coverage, and more than one editor responded that they've had far and away more letters concerning the local impacts of the American Healthcare Act mm. than they have um, about
1: Comey and Russia. I spent some time checking out the museum's website, which does a great job collecting and presenting front pages from around the country of basically every newspaper. And it seemed like, Brendan, one of the big focuses uh, a couple weeks ago was Trump's proposed budget, which got top billing because it was able to be localized. One newspaper would say, here's what the budget means for South Dakota. Another would say Trump's budget affects Gulf cleanup. It seems like that's the sort of issue that really plays from a national all the way down to local level. And I just wonder, with this cresting wave of attention to Comey, the fact that he's going to be on national television, every broadcast network, every cable network, do you think that tomorrow will be the day that this kind of breaks through on a hard news side, not just editorials to the local levels?
2: It's hard for me to say definitively that it will be. I think it would be incredibly interesting if it would be. I think it's far more likely that, that you still see a, a volume from the editorial pages that you're still not seeing um, as far as news coverage go.
0: Yeah, one of the interesting things you see if you go into surveys about media consumption habits is that people in the, in the United States, in a lot of cases, get their political information from local news organizations rather than national news organizations such as CNN or the New York Times. So in many cases you have say the 10 o'clock news or your local newspaper being what people in many parts of the country turn to first in order to learn not only what's going on in their communities, but also what's going on nationally speaking. So this this local versus national dichotomy, you know, plays a big role in how the public, very broadly speaking, understands our political situation. So Brendan, I'm curious, even though a lot of these publications aren't covering say Trump and Russia to the extent that national publications are, when they editorialize on these topics, Is the tone that they take similar to the very aggressive hardline stance that you see in many national news organizations?
2: By and large, uh, yes, there has been a similarity in tone uh, with most local editorials that we reviewed compared to some of the ones that we've seen in national papers. There is uh, one that we reference in the piece um, that, you know, uh, where an editorial board attempts to make the case for an independent counsel um, to lead the Russian inquiry. And that's, you know, it's certainly been uh, a a presence in a number of national editorials as well. But there have been some kind of more tempered responses, whether that's the function of an editorial board trying to glean the political leanings of their most devoted readers Mm. or trying to appeal to a new group. And, you know, there was one that we encountered where the message at this point is, let's just trust the process and see what happens less pointed, um, but perhaps a way of trying to appeal to a, a readership to stay tuned and maybe an opportunity for that same local paper to build on its own coverage.
0: Well, this is certainly a dichotomy that we will be watching eagerly. And just for all those listening, U.S. Project keeps track of all this stuff on a daily basis at cgr.org. Brennan Fitzgerald, thanks so much for joining us. That was our show. Thank you so much for kicking it with us. Please subscribe to The Kicker on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Overcast, wherever you kids get your shows nowadays. Please share it on Twitter, share it with your friends, share it with your mom. You guys are really what keep this program afloat, and we greatly appreciate your help. I love talking to you each and every week, and I'm looking forward to you next week. Cheers.